Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show here on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You are with the Double L team, Lyle and... Lawson. Lawson. What are you thankful for this morning? Um, Stuff. Okay, Lawson is thankful you know, for stuff. Okay, there you go. okay I'm going to be honest. Uh, you know, got announced yesterday. New South Wales is in another two-week lockdown, and yes. I immediately was sad. <laughs> <laughs> Were you surprised? Not really, because it's like, it's like oh man, I saw this like Instagram post that was there was like this video of like the the cases keep going up, and every time you're like, all right, is the lockdown going to end? And then the cases go up. And then it's like, no, like, and that's kind of the place that we're at now. It's like, yes. all right, maybe the lockdown's going to come to the end this week, you know, like we've Thank been good. Happen. And then we check the cases and it's at like 900. <laughs> so, oh. This is what's going to happen. Uh, our vaccination rates are going to go up. Mm-hmm. And once our vaccinations go, rates go up, restrictions will be eased. And once restrictions are eased, infections will go up. And uh, the restrictions will either come back a little bit tighter or stay the same. Mm. But Look, there's, we're not going back to free living for a long time yet. This is this is what I'm grateful for. This is what I'm grateful for that we can still do church in some form. Yeah, I look forward to have like care group tonight where we get together, um, and then we have church tomorrow morning. And at least we can do something during lockdown. Like I just could not imagine trying to do this like 15 years ago. That, like, I feel like now, you know, because we've been through lockdown last year and come out of it. And I remember, like, at the time, you know, being a student as well, like, I was, there's lots of Zoom fatigue. I was yes. like, I'm just always we've on got Zoom. square eyes. And, and even, but now, like, I'm, I'm, it, like, even more over Zoom, but even more grateful that it exists so we can do church. Because yes. if I didn't have that, Praise I'd God. be so... Just wrecked. It'll be pretty devastating. Yeah, we can praise God for the technology that is available to us. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. But you'd have a kind of memorial and yeah, rain. fair anyway. enough. Whatever. Let's uh, let's move on with positively different news this morning. What is happening in the world of positively different news? Okay, in positively different news, the U.S. Um, Environmental uh, Protection Agency or EPA, kind of a bit, a bit of a, a bit of a notorious company for, for. Well, they've done lots of good things. Yes. Um, but I think probably one of the main groups of people who aren't fans of them are car people. Because for Americans, they have so many issues with being able to drive cars and do different things. Well, Americans love their big trucks. Yeah, they love. You know, their- they love their, their their F trucks and that kind of thing. It's just um, they don't know how you could survive without such a thing. But then you go to California and you can't like import cars for twenty five years, and a lot you know a lot of things don't get brought over to that market because they need to be fitted with like catalytic converters and pass the EPA emission standards. Like they've got some of the. St- Toughest and they also, strictest restrictions. They also the have some of the worst pollution in the United States. You've got a massive inversion there in, in uh, Los Angeles, which just locks the pollution in. And when you're flying in, you're just descending through this layer of soup. That's so right. They kind of need to have. They need. They it. need it. 
they need it. But the EPA has done something really good. They've actually just banned a pesticide that has shown like a quite a clear, not only correlation, but a link um, to damage health in children and farmers. Um, so spray it on apples, strawberries, citrus fruit, corn, alfalfa, grapes, cotton, almonds, walnuts, and broccoli since 1965. Um, I'm going to pr- try to pronounce this. Organophosphate pesticide called um, chlorophyll. P-P-Fos, chlor- P-Fos, that's what I'm calling it now, um, has been linked to intellectual impairment, loss of working memory, and reduced IQ in children, as well as damage to prenatal development of infant brains. There so, you go. So that's like... Sounds like some pretty serious stuff. It's really Glad it's not being serious used anymore. Stuff. Um, it also obviously impacts the health of farm workers who, is, who are having to distribute it. You know, they're right Spray. there. Um, but yeah, uh, in, in California, the EPA has moved to completely ban it and the legislation has gone through. So now from the, um, uh, from the beginning of September, you cannot spray this on your... So our broccoli might be a little bit safer than what it was before. You know, it's amazing some of the chemicals that have been used over the years for, you know, as pesticides and herbicides and so forth. I remember when I was a kid, we had a certain pesticide that had been banned at that point. So this is back in the 80s, the early 80s. This thing had been banned for like 20 or 30 years at that point. So, you know, it was banned back in like the 40s or 50s. So, And this stuff was just absolutely lethal. Yeah. I mean, ridiculously lethal. We used it as a as a poison in an undiluted format for poisoning, you know, pests and so forth. That um, and so you, you basically what you'd do is you would put an electric fence around a one of the fruit trees, and you'd put signs on the electric fence that say "poison laid" and all this kind of stuff. And you take an apple and put it under the fruit tree on a, on a stake, and put one drop in the top of the apple. Mm. You know, and a crow came and pecked at it. He made it about 600 millimetres before he died with just one peck. The next crow made it like 14 feet. And the feral cat who ate one of the crows made it about 200 metres into the paddock. That's intense. And that used to be watered down and sprayed on vegetables back in like the 40s and whatnot. Can you believe some of the stuff that we have used? It was really, really freaky stuff. I'm surprised life expectancy's gone up since. It's just like, oh, just, you know, the stories of the past. So, yeah, having seen how that works, I'm kind of glad to see less pesticides being used. That's right. Yeah. Well, since that like latest innovation where there's that that crawler that you know goes the laser, the, 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 the laser, laser weed that just just lasers all the weeds. They just need yeah. to have a laser that lasers all the bugs as well. That's right. Just identifies bugs. Zap. Zap. Just psst. yeah. Problem solved. Easy. But you know. This first step of getting rid of the pesticides first is probably the, the best way to go. Um, so, yeah, good to see. Uh, at least for Californians, they'll be more healthy and it'll probably inspire change around the world. Okay, so, dude, have you heard of the Virgin Hyperloop? No. Oh, dude, this is the sickest thing ever. They tested it last year. Basically, it's like they've just unveiled their new um, development that they've made in it, their, their new prototype. Well, they've already had a prototype. They've um, they've unveiled, uh, sorry, they've unveiled their new uh, concept for it and it's essentially a floating orb that sits on top of a magnetic levitation track and travels like a thousand kilometers it's basically the new bullet train but it uses no energy it uses no energy well like it's 
efficient. It's efficient. Okay, there's a difference between efficient and no energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's <laughs> there's right. That's a thing right, called equal right. and opposite, you know, action and reaction. That, and so that's forth. right. That's right. Look, but hey, they've already tested this. They've got, and it's literally like an orb that sits on, it levitates in the air on top of a magnetic track, like right. that with, you know, two poles pushing against each other. Yes. And it sits up there and they've already had it going like 170 kilometers an hour. Okay. And just floating. It's like literally that's, that's, that's like, cool. we're talking about like... But 170 kilometers an hour is not that fast, really. I mean, you know, steam trains go faster than that. Yeah, no, no, no. But, like the 1800s. But this is the thing, is yes. that like, this is the first development. Like, yes, we this just, was the prototype last year. They've just unveiled the new concept that's going to go 1,000 kilometers an hour. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And replace the bullet train. Thousand, a thousand, a thousand that's Ks. That's ridiculously that's fast. Ridiculously fast. Um, and and more, moreover, like I'm going the, a thousand kilometers an hour. I want to be a long way away from hard things like the Earth. The Earth. Well, that's why it's kind of like shaped as a ball. Like you know, for safety reasons, if anything, you know, like if you're going a thousand kilometers an hour, do crunch zones even matter? No, because that's that's what I'm thinking. Is like they've shaped it as a ball, so it has the ability to. Crash safely because you're going like thousand kilometers. There's an no hour. such thing as crashing safely at a thousand nah, kilometers. They're, they're an prob- hour. Look, they've probably worked it out. <laughs> <laughs> but no, this is really cool. They've like been unveiling all this stuff about it. I'm like, this is perfect. This but if they make a bullet train that does a thousand kilometers now, I will go for a ride. I want to be on it definitely. Yes. And they're talking about something um, that like the the way that they want to set it up. They these pods like this is they want to scale it to where they can fit tens of thousands of passengers. You know, in tens of thousands in groups of pods that like can all link up and turn into a train. So you can have a singular pod that kind of floats along the track, uh-huh. or you can have like a group of pods that can carry t- like t- they want to create a massive railway network out of magnetic tracks that these balls float on. It's, okay. It's the coolest thing. I'm like, I'm, I'm about it. This is the future right here. This is like, like, uh, the future is space travel. Yeah. Yeah. But this, I honestly, I would rather the future this. Is, the future is heaven. <laughs> That's amen. The future is Jesus coming back. But before he comes, we have this cool stuff to look forward to that ultimately like they're, you know, uh, they're going, uh, this is, this is what, uh, the, the statement that come out about it that it has zero direct emissions. Um, so that's, you know, as we we're talking about, it doesn't use no energy, but out of the pod itself and the movement of the pod up the track, like it is completely no emissions. No it's emissions. Just magnet- magnetic. It's just magnetic, right? So they're like obviously in the in at the moment they're building the the prototypes and whatnot, but from that point forward they're looking to get government funding so that they can make this a thing and look if idaho of all places is like we're gonna make a coil freeway that charges cars like surely a different american state wants to one them up and be like okay we're gonna have a train line where it's just floating orbs that travel a thousand kilometers an hour i think the good thing is in this train you won't have to wear seat belts kind of irrelevant at a thousand kilometers an hour isn't it? <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> you're listening to the breakfast show podcast on faith fm positively different all right, that should be an easy one for all of you. So give us a call right now. Make sure you save that number in your phone so that it is easier for you to access. There are prizes to win or bragging rights. You can join the bragging rights community uh, of people who just play along every morning. Whichever you prefer, 
And uh, just we love to hear from our listeners here on The Breakfast Show. So looking at some more serious news, of course, uh, the big news all over the news this morning is about what happened in Afghanistan. Two Mm. suicide bombs going off right there, 60 people dead, 143 wounded, 12 U.S. soldiers. And, you know, this is the real tragedy. The thing that sort of really breaks my heart more than anything else is whenever there's a war, it's kind of like those last soldiers that lose their lives just before it comes to an end. You know, they're, they're all pulling out in a couple of days' time, uh, never to go back, and 12 of them die. It's, mm. just, it's just absolutely horrific for something like that. We need to keep, we need to keep these guys in our prayers, um, and we need to be praying for their families in particular. And so it raises some interesting questions in relationship to the Taliban. You know, what do we do with the Taliban? Do we recognize their government? Do we engage with the Taliban? Because if we do so, then we have... Uh, at least the opportunity of having some influence and maybe we can have some positive influence? Or do we just say, no, we don't negotiate with terrorists? These guys have a history of terrorism, a history of harboring terrorists, and so that therefore we will have nothing to do with them, which then probably results in a worse outcome for people in Afghanistan. Who knows? Mm. It's a very challenging kind of a situation to be in. But, of course, these bombings were not carried out by Taliban. They were carried out by ISIS-K, and we sort of like, okay, who is ISIS-K? So ISIS-K stands for the Islamic State of, Islamic State of Khorasan. Mm-hmm. And this is not connected. There's no organic connection between this and ISIS in the Middle East. This is uh, ISIS in Asia. And it's a movement that was created in Pakistan, modeled on ISIS in the Middle East by disaffected Taliban. Okay. So these are basically ex-Taliban who are like, the Taliban don't go far enough, Mm. they're not strict enough, Uh, they are compromising, they are watering down Islam, etc. And it's actually been ISIS-K that has been the main focus of US action and airstrikes in in Afghanistan over the last few months, Mm. uh, rather than the Taliban. Their main target is other Muslims, Mm. Shiites. Yeah, well. So it's a little bit, you know, like Catholics and Protestants fighting each other within Christianity. It's Sunnis and Shiites following each other, uh, fighting each other uh, in, in within Islam. And so that's really come about as a lack of uh, Christian or United States targets. And so if I guess if you're a part of one of these organizations, you've got to have somebody to fight. And so that's where they've mostly been going after. Mm. So they've been heavily critical of the Taliban. Um, they're not strict enough, etc. And, you know, the Taliban's pretty strict. Yeah. You know, they ban things like music. Mm. You know, you're pretty strict when you ban music. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, It's just like no music. Uh, and it's like, how do you actually go stricter than that? I don't know. Um, one of the challenges is that a lot of ISIS-K members exist within the Taliban ranks. Okay, so yeah. They're not easily identifiable as... Mm. Because um, they're not yeah. necessarily their own like political party or something. It's just a group of people who believe a certain thing. Yes. Yeah, so they can kind of exist anyway. That's tough. Now, what's interesting about this uh, recent attack, of course, was that the Americans knew that it was coming and they were able to warn all the Americans to stay away except for their soldiers, which can't. Mm. They're the ones who are actually providing the security and so no American civilians lost their lives in those bombings. Uh, but, you know, you've got a lot of uh, Afghanis there who either did not hear that or who uh, were going to take the risk anyway of being there at the airport. So we certainly need to continue to pray for the situation that is unfolding in Afghanistan. 
Sports celebrities. I thought we might talk a little bit about sports celebrities okay. this morning because, you know, this is an interesting thing that I've been observing and I'm kind of wondering whether I'm the only one. And that is that, you know, we, we live in a, in a world that, you know, we're continually being told it's increasingly secular and so mm-hmm. forth. And yet even with the last Olympics, I'm seeing an increase in the number of sports people who are open about their faith, who are open about their Christianity, and who openly give thanks to God. Yeah, that's right. That's you right. know, you look at the, uh, the the Fijian rugby team, and it's quite enough, you know, a little bit humorous there. In that, you know, when that when they win their game, you know, they're all down on their knees, have, sharing prayer together, and then they all stand up and sing a hymn together. And the commentators have no idea what's going yeah, on. Yeah, the just, Aussies are just like, what? Uh, they're like, they're really thankful. <laughs> they see all the emotion. This is this is. Uh, this is this is worship. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the commentators had no idea that it was actually worship that was taking place. And I've been seeing more of that in recent mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether I'm the only one. You know, coming out of the Olympics, I saw more in the more expressions of faith in the Olympics than I've ever seen before. Um of course you have the example of um Sydney McLaughlin from the United States, uh, gold medalist hurdlist. Wow. Who you know gave thanks to God, and she just got engaged over the weekend to NFL star Andre Levron Jr. in a very worshipful engagement in which mm. they gave glory to God, in which um, he expressed that you know he wanted to love her as Christ loved the church, mm. and she said she stated that you know he was the most God fearing, passionate, honest, loving, hardworking individual that she knew. And it's interesting to see them putting God at the front of their relationship with God. You've got other other situations where sports people will thank God for winning, mm. like God gave me the power to beat this other person, and I don't really go along with that. I think that God loves it when we get out there and do our best at whatever right. it is that we're doing. And that's what God is interested in rather than us winning over somebody who might not be a Christian. Mm. That's not what it's about. It's about human beings getting out there and doing their best and giving glory to God for the fact that they can get out there and do their best. Wow, yeah, yeah. And just being thankful, you know, if they win a prize or something or other as a part of that. Um, You've got Sam uh, Ellinger, who is um, an NFL quarterback for the Colts, who just recently uh, stated, you know, God is first and foremost before football. Uh, and at the end of the day, football is just sport. Mm. So, you know, this is, a, this is a major sports player right here who's like, yeah, you know what, at the end of the day, it's just sport. But, you know, God, when, when we're dealing with God, we're dealing with eternity, we're dealing with things that are real. And uh, sport is about having fun and creating entertainment and, you know, all of those kinds of things for the world, but at the end of the day, there is much more to life than sport. Yeah, well, I think that there are a lot of secular people, a lot of you know Aussies and so forth, where sport has become their god. Yeah, who would struggle to actually see how you would, if you're going to be an elite athlete, have a higher priority than that which you are competing in. Mm, yeah, especially for the athletes, like putting everything into like the massive thing. To be honest, like. It, I honestly, okay, I'm going to try and do some cultural, um, some some conjoining, some correlation, causation right here. Yes. You know how I think is responsible for this? Go ahead. Justin Bieber. 
Maybe. Maybe. Justin Bieber and Kanye West. Just from this perspective, because up until this point, you've seen um, expressions of faith in the sports arena and, you know, the media arena, whatever it may be, that have been quite surface level. People are like, oh, yeah, like, God bless, da-da-da-da-da. But you've always had the sense that it's like, oh, you know, they're giving thanks to God, but, you know, it's it's just something that everyone does. Whereas I feel like these public radical statements of faith that are so open have been a result of of people. So, so the music industry led yeah, the way. Well, people like Justin Bieber and Kanye West making art that is very Christian in nature rather than just making secular music and being like, oh, yeah, but, you know, I'm a Christian, like, praise God that this music sold well, which has been the tradition of the past. They're making, like, like art that is Christian. And it, there's, so I think in amongst that rank of high-profile uh, celebrities and, and sports people and whatnot, there's been like, a, oh, it's okay to be, like, a radical Christian because the artists think it's cool. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Well, joining us on the phone this morning is Eliza Southwell, our resident historian. Eliza, welcome to the show. It's great to be on now. Now, Eliza, this morning, I understand that we're going to talk about the history of a most interesting person from Western Australia, uh, and her name is Edith Cohen. That's right. Now, you know, Um, one of the things I find interesting about Australian history is we have these fascinating people that have done great things that we we kind of honour, you know, put them on our money mm-hmm. or something rather. We actually have no idea who they are. Um, mm. We just see a face on the on, on the money and it's like, well, it's just money and we move on from there. But uh, <laughs> let's let's talk about Edith Cohen and who she was and what she did. That's right. So Edith Cohen is on the back of the fifty dollar note, um, but she she's mainly known for being what we would today call a social worker um, and a politician. She was the first female member of any Australian parliament, um, and she served in WA. Um, But she actually, when you dig a bit deeper, her volunteer work um, in the areas of education, health, women's um, issues, uh, children's issues, and of the Anglican Church, she founded or served in up to 46 volunteer organizations and associations over her life. So, and four of those she actually served as president in. So she was absolutely prolific when it came to investing whatever she could in her position to help the lives of the people around her in as practical a way as she possibly could. That's a truly truly remarkable life that a person could be, you know, could could invest so much of their life into helping other Mm. people. I mean, that's that's just, Mm -hmm. that's, Got to be a record somewhere and, along the line, I'm sure. <laughs> well, and it's not as if she didn't have commitments at home. You know, she was married. She was a mother of five. Um, she started a lot of her volunteer work when her youngest was about four. Um, but, yeah, she absolutely had commitments everywhere and just wanted to invest and give as much love as she could to the people around her. But what I find really interesting about Edith Cohen is we remember her for being um, – you know, a, a giving person. We remember her from having an Order of Australia medal for her work in World War One. We remember her for being the first female um, to sit in an Australian Parliament. But when we look at where she came from and the things that she struggled with as a young person, 
um, and the shame that was brought upon her as a young person, it's it's quite incredible to see the transformation. Could this possibly be the same Edith Cohen? Yes, he um, comes from a very rough background. Very rough. And that's so not what you was, expect. No. Tell us, tell us a little no. about where she was born and some of the tribulations that she dealt with as a young person growing up. Right. She was born on an outback station. Um, her father's family were pastoralists and um, her father was a horse breeder. Um, she was one of... Uh, six or seven children, I forget now. Um, and her mother died in childbirth when she was under 10. Um, she was sent off to boarding school in Perth and she finished school. Um, she, she was actually tutored by an Anglican um, canon, which is like an esteemed retired church leader. Um, but around that time when she was 18 years old, things started coming out about her father that became very public in Perth society. So Edith's father was distant from her, and he was also abusive. So the business was bad with droughts and um, disease. He bred horses, and he ended up moving to Melbourne to race them. Um, Historian Peter Cohen demonstrates that his Behavior from this time became erratic. He was given to outbursts of temper, um, compounded and perhaps in part caused by his drinking. So when she was 15 years old, when Edith was 15 years old, um, after a long, drawn-out trial, her father was hanged for murdering his second wife in a drunken um, episode where he shot her. That's and pretty so, horrific when you when you when your own right. father is a murderer and not just mm-hmm. you know uh, murdering somebody who is maybe you know in self defence or anything like that, but he murder mm. he shoots his own wife dead. That's got to be mm. very very high up there as far as right. the levels of dysfunction go. Right. What does that do to a fifteen year old? Mm. You know, her she's been distant from her father, and probably that was an enormous mercy yes. actually. Yes. That probably relieved her from a lot of abuse. Um, but she was left an orphan and she lived with her grandmother. And on top of that, um, her father was well known. He was a pastoralist. He was from a rich family. Everyone knew his name. And um, the trial was not quick and easy. Obviously, you know, it was on the newspaper. He was in the newspapers and she would have been subject to comment and ridicule and Actually, um, it went to trial three times because the first two times um, the trial ended up in a hung jury. So this, it just kept on getting dragged out. And um, when she was 18, she married. So she was fairly young. Um, but she married. Her husband was actually the Perth police magistrate. Um, and so this put her in a really interesting position where she had um, insight into the wider society's social problems. Um, and this, like her her childhood of experiencing and being so closely associated with domestic violence and, and having such insight into her personal family situation, compounded with her husband's work, um, really gave her 
I think obviously gave her her lifelong drive um, to fight against domestic violence and drunkenness especially, but also to speak openly about venereal disease and prostitution and contraception, illegitimacy and so on. And so she, she like, if you think about what, what, what would I do if that kind of situation was my experience? What would happen if I were 15 and that happened to me? Um, you know, I can't help but think I would fall in a heap and become resentful of the world. But Edith, perhaps we don't know. Um, but perhaps through the influence of her grandmother, certainly through um, her uh, understanding of the gospel and her close association and in deep involvement in the Anglican Church, Edith found a way to overcome these things, not through her own strength, we know that would be impossible, um, but through Jesus' strength. And so she was, at 15, she was a person who seemed to have fallen so far, seemed to have uh, no hope in a worldly kind of way of um, winning esteem or winning favor in the eyes of the world. And yet God had plans for that. Yeah, and even, even for doing something of uh, of great significance, you know, you you you, mm-hmm. you come from, you know, that level of disadvantage and that kind of abuse. So often, mm. people just don't accomplish anything of great significance. But here's right. the example of somebody who, through the power of God and her relationship with God, mm. uh, absolutely does so. Mm, absolutely, and she was like to give you an example of the kind of work she did in the Anglican Church. She wasn't just a pew warmer. She didn't just come along every Sunday and, and enjoy the sermon and go home. She um, she was the first female member of the Anglican Social Questions Committee, which is was a committee that um, applies theology to practical issues for official use by the Anglican Church. So the Anglican Church has a long history of, um, like, like many denominations, has a long history of getting involved in social issues. And so she was, um, in her time, a person who guided um, those social issues. And um, she was also uh, co-opted as a member of the Synod um, from 1823, which is a little bit like, for our Adventist listeners, it's a little bit like being elected to discuss um, policy at the GC. Um, So she was certainly very involved. She was an excellent public speaker and she passed on those, uh, that training in her um, work in some of the organization, organizations and associations that we were talking about before. Um, she was the first secretary of the Karakata Club for Women in um, 1894, which um, was a society that gave women an opportunity to learn how to give lectures and gave women a forum to discuss um, current affairs and health and women's issues. Edith Cohen is often characterized as a feminist and or a worker for women's rights. And I don't think that, I think that's a little bit anachronistic. Um, feminism in those days was anyone who thought women were more than subhuman. Um, but, but, um, Edith Cohen, really, her her passion lay in protecting women's lives, 
in giving them the opportunity to make of themselves what God intended them to be. Yes. So um, some of that looked like um, she she supported a, the Health Act of 19, which um, focused on venereal disease. So in 1915, um, in the middle of World War One, stories were coming back from Egypt particularly um, that the diggers had gone rife, they'd um, caught, like, it, the, the picture was painted that all the diggers had gone and caught venereal disease, caught STDs, and in fact, only 5%, um, which is a significant number, but only 5% of World War One diggers returned with STDs. Now, her concern was, well, we need to protect women from unknowingly contracting STDs. In those days, um, unlike today, you didn't have to uh, tell a sexual partner if you had an STD. Um, and so she um, strongly pushed for this health act to make it a reportable offence. This absolutely divided the women's movement. The radicals didn't want anything to do with this. Um, and so, but, but Edith Cowan saw that something had to be done to protect mm, women. Mm. Um, another example is when she was sitting in the WA Parliament, um, she only sat for a term, but when she, when she did, she introduced a piece of legislation that opened up the legal profession to women. Um, she also uh, supported legislation called the Guidance of Infants Act of um, 1922, which allowed women to apply to the courts if their husbands abandoned them without adequate maintenance. Um, it was the first act in WA that um, basically gave child support for mothers who were abandoned by their husbands. Um, and through her efforts, she argued that illegally entitled to a share of her husband's income. So basic things like these that, you know, we hear about these things being manipulated today, but in those days, there was no support for women, even if they were abandoned. And Edith Cohen knew the practical issues. As, it, as we said before, her husband was a police magistrate, and she saw those practical issues, worked with them in charity work and volunteer work, but then also went through to the government level to change things and make things easier for women and families. It's a remarkable story, and I guess one of the sad things is, you know, when I jump online and look at the Wikipedia page, there's basically nothing there about her faith and her deep connection with God, uh, mm. which was really central to everything that she did in her life. And, you know, you mm. mentioned all those different boards that she was a part of, and mm. so few of them, those are listed as well. This was this is a person who lived a very full life and a very mm. productive life and made a, a huge difference. I mean, a lot of the things that you're talking about here that, you know, she instituted or, or instigated, I should say, uh, are things that we just kind of take for granted today, but mm, it was a very absolutely. different world back then. Eliza Southwell, okay. thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, unfortunately, I'd love to keep talking, but we are out of time. I'm going to have to move <laughs> on to the show. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.